Hello and welcome to another episode of Shadow Talk, a cybersecurity news and threat intelligence podcast brought to you by the ReliaQuest threat research team. First of all, happy May 4th. May the 4th be with you. Uh, Corey made sure I, I got that one in there on the podcast. Uh, so if there's any other uh, Star Wars nerds out there, I know I definitely am one of them, then uh, happy May 4th. May the 4th will be with you. Um, so I will start by introducing the members of the Shadow Talk podcast for this week. So, of course, I'm Chris. I'm your host. And I'm joined this week by the aforementioned Corey Carter. How are you doing, Corey? Hey, doing great. Thanks for asking, sir. Good, good, good. And also on the line, we have Ivan Rigi. How's things, Ivan? Things are great. Thanks for having me, Chris. Good, good, good. Glad to hear it. Okay, so I thought we could start with a brief mention of some interesting threats that have emerged in the past week before getting onto our discussion items. Uh, so first up, there's the AMOS, also known as the Atomic Info Stealer. Uh, this has been widely reported this week as being sold through private Telegram channels in the form of a $1,000 a month subscription. Uh, so buyers reportedly get the DMG file for AMOS containing the malware, uh, and this is based on a 64-bit Go uh, and is designed to target Apple operating systems. So something quite different there uh, in terms of InfoStealers being able to target Macs. Uh, also reported this week is the Russian Sandworm hacking group. You've obviously heard about Sandworm quite a bit from us in the past. Uh, they've been linked to an attack on the Ukrainian state network. Uh, reportedly, WinRAR was used to destroy data on these government devices. Uh, and of course, you know, just to mention that as the conflict rages on the battlefield uh, within Ukraine, you know, the same is also happening in cyberspace. Uh, and finally, this week, the FBI have seized nine crypto exchanges uh, that reportedly facilitated money laundering for scammers, cyber criminals, including ransomware actors. Uh, and yes, I did double check. Coinbase, Binance and KuCoin are not on those list of nine. So no need to worry about your portfolios being taken uh, on there. No need to worry. Um, so let's move on to our first topic and something a little different this week. So we thought we'd give Corey the mic, uh, given he is here with us today, to provide insights on his day-to-day -day job and what the team's been up to recently so, Corey, could you explain to our audience uh, a little more on what a threat intelligence engineer actually does at ReliQuest? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. So a threat intelligence engineer, it's going to fall under a team called Detection Research. Now, as you can imagine, with a team called Detection Research, our main component of our product, Gray Matter, that we impact is our Detect. Now, Detect is going to be where our detection library, so our list of rules, is going to be. But not only do we you know, develop new rules and update existing rules in that detect facet, we also support uh, other teams. So teams like the threat hunting team, the threat research team, and the threat protection team. Now, a little bit more specifically, like when it comes to the threat hunting team, we're going to review upcoming hunts, uh, see their proposals. We're going to review after actions. Uh, also, the threat hunting team is a great resource when it comes to our detections. As you can imagine, they're looking across environments over spans of times to try to develop a very high fidelity hunting query at times. Now, not every hunt is going to result in a detection, but sometimes they're able to go through and 
either update content with like maybe a little bit of another use case to detect something, or who knows, maybe their hunting query becomes such high fidelity that it's able to be transferred into our library. And if that activity is seen in a customer's environment, then we're going to trigger an alert. So it's a great way for a hunt to be, you know, ultimately result in something much more valuable and scalable. Uh, for the threat research team, uh, we support them by doing vulnerability research, uh, among other things. And then our threat detection team, they're responsible for actually building the rules, either in gray matter detect or in the customer's environments, you know, depending. But as you can imagine, as they're going through and deploying these rules, they're I, they're observing trends. You know, whenever a rule gets deployed into an environment, it's going to go through like a tune to readiness phase. And if a detection developer is building rules and they come across like consistent false positives that they identify during that tune to readiness phase, what they're going to do is submit a rule update ticket to us. And that way we can kind of try to correct that at a fundamental level so it doesn't become as much work as they're going through that same tune to readiness phase. Good stuff. What what specifically you know is your your uh, your role actually entail? So you know I'm assuming you know you have a, quite a bit of work in sort of mapping techniques. You know I know you've referenced MITRE quite a bit in the past. Um, is there anything you want to add on on that sort of note? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, specifically when it comes to MITRE, uh, you know big fans of MITRE over here. It, it's great to have a, a resource that you know traverses. Uh, customers and you're able to see like the progression of an attack as it you know uh, goes through the kill chain but uh, for those that don't know MITRE released version 13 last week and with that it came with uh, several new techniques and uh, several additional new sub techniques so we're go what we do is we like to map our rules to MITRE and that not only gives like some visual cues to like where our coverage is but it, you know, is able to provide more value to understand like where we have coverage along the attack, the um, the kill chain of an attack. So something a little bit more exciting, maybe that I work that I'm currently working on, is uh, a Telegram API bot activity that just came across uh, my desk. So we had a uh, we had a customer submit a you know user reporting phishing email, and within that uh, there was an attachment, an HTML file. So the scheme kind of went that you, you know, you open the attachment, it would open in a browser, but the URL fields actually just going to point to that HTML file that's being stored on your desktop somewhere. And you open this HTML file, you're going to be presented with a Microsoft login page. So this HTML file contains some JavaScript in the back end that helps reproduce that Microsoft Office login page that many enterprise environments are going to be used to. Once they oh, once they input the username, uh, it's going to go to that password page. They go ahead and input their password. And then what is interesting at that point is the JavaScript will collect some metadata and send an outbound request to a bot that's being hosted on Telegram. So when things like this come, come across, we definitely want to look into it more because we have some coverage. You know, I'm not saying we don't, but we can always look to either improve our coverage um, you know, so tweak it a little bit to maybe either detect a slightly different way that we've seen it done in the past, uh, you know, to also incorporate that or just find like a higher fidelity way to, you know, detect kind of unusual activity. That's super interesting. Yeah, the HTML smuggling aspect is something that I've kind of become a lot more aware of in recent months. Obviously, we did a, a blog and we spoke about HTML smuggling on a podcast a while back as just one of the, the ways that actors are kind of adapting their phishing methodology. 
Um, I think one of the points we made on the blog is that, you know, obviously Microsoft with their decision on macros last year, was it last year? I think it was last year. Um, that that obviously has an impact on the techniques that these threat actors are using to land malicious mails in users' inboxes. Um, so really super interesting. Obviously, Telegram is a, you know, a, a really common way that cyber criminals are, um, are interacting. Uh, we talked about this in the, I think the, the podcast that Ivan was on last actually, with the um, the takedown of breach forums and you know where are actors actually going to? It's Telegram. That seems to be the most common place at the moment. So interesting to show how the team are um, are mapping this act- activity and stuff that's going on. Great stuff. Um, let's move on to the the next topic of the day, uh, and that concerns the Alfie ransomware operation. Uh, Alfie, of, who of course I'm sure you're all uh, aware, uh, are also known as Black Cat. Uh, they published screenshots of internal emails and video conference files stolen from Western Digital, uh, indicating they likely had continued access to the company systems, uh, even as the company responded uh, to this particular breach. Uh, the leak actually comes after you know Alfie warned uh, this particular company on the 17th of April that they would continue to uh, damage their interests. Uh, if they until they essentially couldn't stand it anymore and, and actually uh, had to go and pay a, a ransom fee. Um, so before we get onto the, the details of the actual breach, you know, first up, Ivan, you know, who are Alfie and what makes them different? Sure. So Alphavi, they are a ransomware as a service group and uh, they have been active since about November of 2021. They operate like many of the ransomware groups active today. Uh, practicing double extortion, meaning that they encrypt and exfiltrate data and then they threaten to leak that data on their data leakage website on the dark web. But uh, what makes Alphavi unique is that it was written using the Rust programming language uh, and they were actually the first Rust ransomware variant to successfully compromise victims. Uh, the group has been very successful since its release and we, of- we often see V as one of the, the top three most active ransomware groups every quarter uh, since it was released. And uh, they are typically only second to Lockbit. Um, one interesting thing is that FAV, they recently announced a version 2.0 of their ransomware uh, on uh, criminal forums. So they, it seems like they are attempting to improve as well, actively attempting to improve. Good stuff. What did we identify about Alfie from our recent quarterly reports? I'm sure listeners will remember uh, we recently released our ransomware quarterly report looking at the, the first quarter of 2023. You know, what did we find out about Alfie from, from that particular report, Ivan? Yeah, so in that report, Alfie was the third most active ransomware group uh, for the quarter. Uh, they came second to CLOP and uh, CLOP only came very high up because they had a burst of victims over the go anywhere vulnerability exploitation. But Alphavi made it all the way to the top again. And uh, once again, showing that they are very motivated and they are they aim to become one of the leaders in the ransomware threat landscape. I remember that when they were re- were released, they even boasted about how their offering was much more reliable than all the other ransomware offerings. So they have the, the developers have the goal of becoming even bigger than Lockbit, but that's going to be a difficult task to achieve. Yeah, very difficult task uh, indeed. Uh, I, I think it's really interesting, Danny, talking about the uh, the hierarchy of ransomware groups on a podcast a few weeks ago with me. Uh, I think he referred to, did he, did he refer to Klopp as a mid-tier ransomware operation? But Alfie, you definitely put in that, that kind of top-tier bracket. 
Um, is there anything from this new campaign that surprises you? So just to mention, uh, apparently Alfie were leaking the incident response communications from the company as decisions were being made on how to actually manage this incident, which to me when I was reading it just seemed, I don't know why I'm surprised by this, but it just seemed overly petty and quite harsh, if, if you know what I mean. It's like this company is trying to deal with the aftermath of this this incident and even their internal comms on how to manage this is being collated and then leaked by by this particular extortion actor. Um, are, are you surprised by this? Uh, I, I guess the answer is no, but you know, interested to hear what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's not surprising to see Alpha V using a different extortion method like this one. Um, after ransomware attacks, these groups typically attempt to embarrass their victims and put pressures on them. And we have seen ransomware groups using a variety of extortion methods over the years. And that has included DDoS attacks, leaking of negotiation chats, calling their victims, uh, partners and customers, and uh, leaking embarrassing files, etc. Anything that they can do to further embarrass their victims and uh, put pressure on them. But as far as Alpha V goes, it's not even the first time that the group has attempted to use a unique way of pressuring victims. I remember vividly back in December of 2022, Alpha V, they created an impersonating website for their victim, and then they used this impersonating website to leak the data that they stole. So the website looked identical to the victim's website. The domain was very similar. It was a typo squatting domain. And uh, but the only difference is that this website, which was hosted on the, on the clear web, had all the data that they stole from the victim. Uh, I haven't seen them do, them do the same thing again, but it's it shows that they are motivated and trying to find any different avenues of extortion uh, to put further pressures on victims. And I do, uh, I do remember that actually. Yeah, I'm 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 not surprised they did they discontinued that method. But yeah, I remember that was kind of out of the box thinking by them, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, this type of threat of information being released to the public, this type of information, this type of exposure can sometimes be enough to get companies to consider making that ransom payment. I, I suppose there's additional pressure even on, you know, the critique that will follow how they actually manage the incident, because obviously that is made you know abundantly public by this being breached. Um, what do you both think is the the best way of dealing with a situation like this? You know, if you know your communications are otherwise compromised, what realistically can you do to continue operations and kind of manage that incident? You know, threat actors, they want to monitor communications because that's the way that they can know if their actions have been detected. And they may give, also give them valuable information that they can use to move laterally. Uh, for that reason, organizations, if they believe that they are infected by a threat, such as ransomware, First thing that they need to do is isolate their systems, and they also need to be using out-of-band communication methods such as phone calls, be, uh, because they want to avoid tipping off the threat actors that they have been discovered. Uh, if the threat actors find out that they have been discovered, they could attempt to move laterally or deploy ransomware before they can be taken offline. Yeah, that's absolutely solid advice. Um, I was going to say something similar. Just you know, make a business decision on what the best steps will be. But ultimately, you you have to use, like you just alluded to there, out-of-band communications. You can't resort to a carrier pigeon, but, you know, like you say, you can pick up your mobile phone, use a GSM call to make business-critical decisions um, or make additional efforts to make sure you've secured your communications before continuing. What? So this is another kind of interesting question. Uh, I'll pose this one to you, Corey. 
What would be the results that would indicate that an attacker has been completely removed from a particular network after it's been compromised? You know, at what point after such an instance do you say, okay, we're now at a point where we would like to move forward? You know, we've achieved remediation of this particular incident. You know, can you ever have that confidence to to go forward and, and achieve that? Yeah, definitely not an easy answer there. Uh, I would say it's it's pretty situationally dependent. Um, let me just give like a small non-technical example, and then I'll try to refer it back to something a little bit more technical. But let's just say you get home from work, you open the front door, you're walking in, and you find a snake in your hallway. You cover the snake up you know, with a box, you get it out of the house, and then at that point, you're kind of like looking around to try to figure out how the snake got in. As you're looking around, you see the back door was you know, left ajar. So you close it, and you think, okay, you do a sweep for the snakes in the house, you don't see anything. And then, you know, most likely within after a few days, you're going to be pretty comfortable kind of walking in your house again. Now, the problem lies is when you come home from work, you find a snake in your house, you get it out, you do a sweep, and you can't figure out how the snake got in, right? So then you're probably going to be spending, you know, several weeks, you're going to be calling in, you know, your buddies to come help you sweep the house for snakes, try to determine how it got in. So if you're able to determine how the snake got in, ultimately, you know, you're, you're much better off because you're able to, to fix that weakness in your house. But if you never figure it out, you know, it's going to be, you may never feel kind of safe again, um, at least, you know, not in the near term. Now, how that kind of relates to something technical is, let's say you have a small impact in your network where you have a, a single host that has ransomware deployed on it. You're able to isolate the host. Um, you know, you have great visibility, you know, have an EDR agent on the host. So you kind of look through what happened and, you know, you're able to identify a user was fished, they bypassed EDR, but they they never left or moved laterally. So, you know, that's probably, you're talking one to one to, or a few days to get that uh, fixed and kind of move past that. You're, you know, you're either going to remove the malware or re-image the host most often. Now, something a little bit more impactful is let's say that you're able to identify ransomware on a domain controller. You know, it's something at that big of scale where you're able to, you know, hopefully you're able to see what kind of went on with the domain controller. You know, you may, if credential dumping goes on and you have ransomware deployed across hosts in different subnets, then you're kind of thinking domain-wide compromise. And that's not, that's, you're going to be re-dealing with that for, for months on end uh, until it gets resolved. Um, so yeah, it's very hard to say, you know, often after like a big, in, big intrusion, you're going to want like, uh, some custom content to be created. You're going to want, you know, those IOCs that were or identified or those lateral movement techniques identified, uh, to kind of like shore up any weaknesses until you can get those patched. So yeah, not an easy answer. Uh, I hope that was, you know, somewhat helpful though. No, no, it was. Yeah. I really like the analogy of comparing ransomware to snakes. Like maybe we should do that a bit more often, to be honest. That sounds like a, a useful way of going at it. Um, I, I, I like the fact that you said it was situationally dependent. You know, if it is a, a relatively small impact and, and breadth of an incident, then you can kind of remediate that quickly. But, you know, if it is a domain controller, then you're going to be in a, a longer stretch in terms of that remediation process. Is that something your team would would do is kind of increase the visibility and en enhance monitoring, you know, post an incident? Is that the kind of thing you would assist with? Yeah, absolutely. I would say it'd be kind of a combination of multiple teams, uh, threat hunting, threat research potentially. Uh, you know, threat hunting would kind of be there for the breach response capability. And then, yeah, we would definitely be there to support for any additional content that can help, you know, in the interim while they're while they're going through trying to, you know, fix any issues they come across. Fabulous. 
well there we go folks that's the kind of thing that's a the the, the services that we have on offer here at ReliQuest. you know we're here to help um let's move on to the last item of the day and that is about a recent vulnerability affecting uh, Veeam backup servers, which have been targeted by at least one group uh, of threat actors known to work with uh, multiple high profile ransomware gangs. So they're, they're targeting this specific uh, vulnerability. So what do we know of the vulnerability in question uh, affecting Veeam, Corey? Uh, and that's CVE 2023-27532. Yeah, absolutely. So to start with, it did impact the Veeam backup and replication software. For those that don't know, this software has been around since 2008. It does very similar to the name suggests. It was responsible for backing up and replicating virtual machines. So the exploit specifically works by if a threat actor is able to interact with a host that is running this uh, Veeam backup and replication software, over port 941, they're able to send a specially crafted packet and then retrieve encrypted credentials from that service. Now, what is kind of interesting with this is from the time the kind of exploit was made known and the and the patch was released, uh, it was it was two weeks from that time that we started seeing like exploitations and chatter uh, coming across. Now, I'm not saying this is connected to what happened in Western Digital, but I do find it interesting that Veeam and Western Digital are partners, and you know this kind of happens around the same time. So don't want to draw any conclusions. I just think it's you know kind of an interesting occurrence. Um, fair enough. Now, fair enough. Yeah, and then for anyone that's had Veeam kind of historically, you know, I feel like this time last year in March, we were kind of seeing very similar three, uh, things. There was three CVEs released uh, in March that were actually had more critical scores released than um, than this current this last one did. So some interesting stuff there for sure. Fabulous. Yeah, really interesting to draw those comparisons between uh, our two topics there. Um, and the fact that it was exploited in such a, a quick space of time, you know, just kind of highlights that shortening gap, that window, the vulnerability management teams actually have to patch things before, you know, they are targeted in the wild. Um, what information do we actually have on its risk, Corey? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is just some of the risks that kind of go into it, but it's definitely a high severity vulnerability. You know, if this is this able, if this is able to be compromised, the infrastructure kind of behind that Veeam software is able to get, uh, you know, laterally moved to. So, some of the factors that go into this like high severity rating is the, you know, it has been associated with a threat actor group, uh, Fin7. It has been associated with malware deployment. Coincidentally, Fin7 has also been associated with Alpha V ransomware. So, kind of another little thing that connects the two topics. Um, and we also have been seeing active exploitation of this. Uh, aside from the active exploitation, this is this has been seen, you know, discussed across multiple forums. We have observed evidence of developers making exploit kits that specifically target this CVE. But what does help is this patch has been released for almost two months now, so the patch is out there. That's the first place you you need to go. I would suggest if you're listening to this and you do have this particular type of software, just go and get it patched as soon as possible. Um, have we got any insights from our own interactions with this particular CVE, Corey? Yeah, I want to knock on wood here and say, you know, luckily we we haven't had customers impacted specifically by exploitation of this vulnerability. Um, but you know, it can it can never be said that there needs to be patching management going on in you know every environment especially those on the network edge that 
you know, would be under great scrutiny by external threat actors because they, they're able to interact with them. So definitely, you know, get yourself like a Voln scanner, make sure you scan your network edge devices, you know, as well as internal devices, but, you know, you want to prioritize those network edges and kind of be alert with your software suite. So if your firewall or your VPN solution or, you know, your your backup solution, your cloud solution does have a vulnerability, you know, you, you have the capabilities of up, updating it within a reasonable amount of time before this exploitation comes out and you're, you know, you're impacted by this and it leads to something devastating. Great stuff. Yeah, we uh, talk until we're red in the face on this podcast about taking a risk based approach to vulnerability management and remediation, of course. And in this particular instance, you would look at it and say it's highly exploitable, something that's used by high risk groups like ransomware actors, you know, proof of concepts available in the wild. This is the kind of thing we're talking about that you need to prioritize, really. So uh, really good summation of that. Thanks, Corey. Uh, Let's end there. I'll just quickly mention the blogs we have going this week. So we have two blogs on ransomware in general. So we have one detailing your best practices and recommendations in dealing with ransomware activity. And we have another blog that's due to be released today on May the 4th on a case study of Lockbit ransomware as uh, viewed by ReliQuest. So really interesting case study from uh, last year. Uh, That's it for today. I'd like to thank Corey and Ivan for joining me today. Thanks very much, guys. Yeah, great being on, Chris. Appreciate you. And uh, also thanks to all of our listeners. But that's it. Stay safe and we'll see you next week. Mm